One year, I kind of got an idea. You know, I want to try trap. I like to trap. I like to make lure, and I like to write. Where can it go from here? I would be able to spend more time in the woods. I was losing money hand over fish trapping, but I didn't care. Getting the traps out there is the hardest part, I think, with them. I would leave the critters in the back of my truck in the high school parking lot. We're going to set traps, like, no matter what. Some of these guys have trapped these areas for generations. We got through the furball. This is Northern Michigan. This is what you do. Representing trappers in a positive light. I'm going to ask you guys a question. Do you know everything? This will be fun. Trying to learn something from these legends. Ask questions without asking questions. Volumes of Perfect and Game magazine. There's structure from Perigo Gorman. Perg Lennon's articles, the Perg Lennon's ads. Information, trapping radios. We are trappers on ourselves. To me, that's pretty important. All right, everybody listening to me? Develop a system yet because work it ahead of time to build big traffic. If you got very much the same as the you got bogged down. They started talking about these big fans. Most of my tunes are coming from up top, not down bottom. Probably the best part of the country in the world. I don't know, get them better. Trying to set predator traps and trash waders. The back of that beaver looks like it gets sheared. You better edit this part out. Yeah, we better. Back in the fur shed. This is Trapping Today. I'm Jeremiah Wood. Thank you for tuning in today. It's great to have you here. We are brought to you by Cotts Brothers Lures. K-A-A-T-Z-B-R-O-S dot com. Trap smarter, work harder, enjoy the success that follows. Cotsbros has a full selection of baits and lures, traps and snares, books, DVDs, everything you need to get started on the trap line. Cotsbros.com. It's also brought to you by OnX Maps. Turn your phone into a fully functioning GPS. Mark trap locations, record tracks, get landowner information and parcel data. Check out the latest aerial imagery, do your scouting figure out where you're going on the trap line, navigate everything you need at onxmaps.com and use the promo code TRAP, T-R-A-P, for 20% off your first purchase. We're also brought to you by the Trapping Today store where I have my two books, uh, Trapping Lures, a a small selection of lures that I make, and the Mustella t-shirts, so check them out uh, while supplies last. All right, tonight's episode, let's see. Um, We're going to start... To tonight, I promise this time I'm not going to take uh, up all of our time <laughs> talking about random topics. We are going to get into the meat of the subject relatively early. Tonight's episode, we're going to talk about trapping around dogs uh, on the trap line. That's going to be a, a tough subject, so it's going to might take a little while to get through. Uh, but first, I want to try this little new segment that I've been working on. A tip, a shout out, a book, and an ask. So, today's uh, tip uh, of the week. This tip is something I just, I, I'm going to try to put together a little list of these as they come to mind because I, I can't just, uh, you know, conjure them up out of thin air. Just, you, you start thinking, uh, assuming that everybody else already knows what you're talking about or something that you do and you don't realize it until sometimes somebody asks you a question or you think, well, oh, I guess there is a reason I do this a certain way. So, um, this tip is one of the first things I learned when I was started getting started trapping. My my mentor taught me is to look for the path of least resistance. When you're trapping animals on land, 
in particular, uh, works with water animals as well. Um, look for travel ways and consider the path of least resistance. What I'm saying here is just like you walking through the woods, an animal is going to find an easy way to travel. They're not going to go through the thick brush and trees and, and go over blowdowns and and through all kinds of bushes unless they have to, unless they're looking for cover. But in their normal travels, like a coyote that's hunting, he's going to be walking the roads. He's not going to be in the woods. When he when he breaks off the roads, look for the skidder trails. Look, uh, look for the cattle trails if you're out in western ranch country. Um, if you look, look for, uh, you know, ATV trails. Look for uh, crop changes, fence lines. Uh, animals are going to go where it's easy to travel. And so look for those well-beaten paths, places uh, without much brush and, and thick stuff to, to stop them up or to slow them down. Check out Path of Least Resistance, and you're going to find more fur traveling through those areas. Tonight's shout-out is um, Mike Kelly from Wild River Traps. Mike sent me last year some uh, some expanded pans for MB550 traps that I have, and they're just a really cool product. They're pretty basic. Um, you know, not talking fancy stuff like uh, another shout out, Chip Davis's Expanda Pans. Those are really nice, high high end stuff. Um, mics are simpler, but they're real rugged, heavy duty, and good pans to expand the catch area on your traps. Um, the ones I'm using are for the MB550s, and it makes for a wider catch area and inside the jaws and I found that it eliminates the need for a pan cover. So shout out to Mike, wildrivertraps.com. You can find that and other products he has there. Tonight's book, Trapline Chatter, Life and Love with Last Alaskan Bob Hart. This was written by Nancy Becker, uh, Bob, the late Bob's ex-wife. And she spent time with Bob on his remote Alaskan trapline in the bush, in the interior, um, in, in the general area that I trapped in in Alaska this past winter. So um, Bob had a pretty incredible story. You could follow him on the TV show The Last Alaskans, by far my favorite show. And uh, he was a pretty beloved character on the show. I've talked about him quite a bit in the past and and, uh, lived one heck of a life out there trapped in the bush. So this book goes kind of behind the scenes on uh, on Nancy's stories and Bob and Nancy's letters uh, that they wrote back uh, during those trap line years. You can find that on uh, at the Alaskan Cache. Uh, that's C-A-C-H-E. There's an online store there. You can get the book for about 20 bucks plus shipping. And on Amazon, you can't get the physical book at a reasonable price, but you can get the Kindle edition. That's uh, $8.99. So you can, if you're into Kindle stuff, you can get that book there. And then finally, the ask. We're on the Kellen campaign. So you've, if you haven't heard last week, I asked you guys, I'd like to get Kellen Cotts on the podcast. Kellen is the other brother of Cotts Brothers Lures, and we haven't heard from him yet. Very busy guy. So um, it is campaign season. I thought it would be a great opportunity um, to show your patriotism to the Trapping Today community. And uh, just like you're probably going to vote in the elections, why don't you vote uh, with your email uh, or your, your order on Cots Brothers Lures and send a message to kellencotsbros at gmail.com or uh, send it when you place your next order. Uh, just tell them you want to hear them on the Trapping Today podcast. We'd love to have him on and talk trapping, talk lure making and whatever else he's got going on. 
So uh, that is a selfish thing for me because I want to get Kellen on, and I know he's busy, but I I think uh, if we get enough pressure uh, behind him and annoy him, bother him enough, he may come on. Okay, now time for tonight's episode. So this was kind of sparked by the idea for this episode by an email I got from a listener in North Carolina. A She's a relatively new trapper. I think this will be her second season. <clears throat> and she was having some discussions with another trapper there about issues trapping around dogs on public land. And this is fairly unique to the U.S. South because dogs in a lot of southern states are a very popular way of hunting. So she says... Um, they're talking about trapping on public land during hunting season, especially deer gun season from mid-November through January 1st, since hunting deer with dogs is allowed here. There's also a strong tradition of small game hunters using dogs when squirrel or rabbit uh, coon hunting here. Trapping season in North Carolina, November 1st to February 28th. Small game season this year is October 12th to February 28th. So basically, there's a good chance of dogs being around on public land most of the trapping season, uh, except in March. Um, she says uh, another trapper asked a, a, a local trapping association forum about deer hunters uh, with dogs putting pressure on fur bears and stuff, and and uh, he got kind of a, a mixed response there. And uh, she asked, you know, why is the onus on us as trappers to watch out for people's dogs on public land? Shouldn't the hunters with dogs also bear some responsibility for keeping their dogs safe? Um, she said there seems to be a hierarchy of deer hunters at the top, small game hunters in the middle, and then trappers at the bottom. And uh, why can't uh, deer hunters be a little more aware of uh, where there's a trap line and avoid those areas? Um, so it goes on a little bit, but basically it's getting at a very difficult subject. And I don't want to jump in the middle of this one because I am from northern Maine where this is not really an issue. We have uh, bear hunters that chase dogs, chase bears with dogs up here. Um, and and that sometimes can be a little bit contentious, but we have so much land and so much area that it it really isn't a big hasn't been a big issue in my experience. Um Last year, I had a bird hunter, a bird dog get caught in one of my MB550s. So I'll talk a little bit about that more. Um, a lot of bird hunters here, that's getting more and more popular. So there are a few issues with that, but uh, typically it, it hasn't been a, a real big problem. Again, because we, we have a lot of area here. And the number of people hunting with dogs is a very small portion of the population here. Now, I know when you get into those states, like in the Carolinas and Georgia and Tennessee, you know, there's really strong traditions of hunting with dogs. And there are different rules and, and uh, dog hunters are allowed to do certain things. And and I don't fully understand it. I know there's some of you guys that listen that are dog hunters and and you are, are big on these traditions. And I, I don't want to uh, try to minimize that because it's a big deal. It's, it's just like, you know, as much as we, a lot of us enjoy trapping and love trapping, it's just as important for, for the dog hunters. Uh, there's, a, there's one big issue, however, with dog hunting, and that is the dog doesn't know where the property line is. And this happens, um, you hear about this happening very, very commonly. And, and it's a very difficult thing for 
state agencies to regulate. It's difficult for hunters to control. It's a challenge for private landowners who don't want people running dogs on their property. And because of the strong tradition, there are a lot of outspoken dog hunters. And I don't want to say they're a large portion of the dog hunters, but I've heard a lot about dog hunters being uh, quite, I, I hesitate, but I'm going to use the word belligerent about their dogs running on other people's property and being very defensive of that. So uh, it is a it is a source of conflict between trappers and houndsmen, as well as you know landowners and houndsmen and and uh, and the regulators and everything else. Just simply because, uh, depending on where people are running dogs, they have the potential to go off of places where they're supposed to be and get in trouble harassing wildlife um, and stepping into traps so it it becomes a challenge because we we have a balance here between respecting the rights of dog hunters to practice their tradition and to pursue game while also understanding that there are problems associated with dogs going where they shouldn't be and understanding that some of that is out of the control of the hunter. So all these things together, um, I mean, in my limited experience up here, we've seen a few stray dogs, and uh, it's always been very, uh, very good relations with the dog hunters, and and they've been respectful, and we've helped each other out, and it's never been an issue in, in my limited experience, but I know it's been an issue elsewhere. So Kristen, I'm going to say, uh, I'm not going to jump in the middle of that issue and tell you exactly how that should be approached because I really don't have the answer to that. Um, like you're going to hear with me on a lot of things, I don't have the answer. But that said, I what I can help with is how we as trappers deal with this overall issue about about catching dogs in our traps. And it's not just going to be... Uh, hound hunting dogs it's gonna i'm also i'm gonna cover this kind of in a broad context because it's not just the hunting dog issue uh, that's that's the particular issue you asked about but there's a lot of people who also deal with people on public trails that are walking their dogs and dogs potentially getting caught in traps and issues on public land where um, both parties have equal right to be there so how do we avoid those conflicts how do we minimize them and how do we address uh, issues that are kind of inevitable in this whole scenario of the the uh, overlap of varying uses on public land? This is a big issue. This is something that modern day trappers are really contending with, and it's affecting our uh, image as trappers, and potentially can affect trapping rights in many places. You have places like. Uh, Wyoming, New Mexico, Montana, where trapping on public trails has been a huge hot button issue recently. And there are groups that are petitioning the uh, state agencies to try and, and ban trapping on around these public trails. You have the issue that sprang up in the Jackson Hole, Wyoming area last winter with a guy that decided he was going to trap on uh, a very heavily used public trail and it caused this public outcry among people who uh, walk their dogs and, and like to hike and snowshoe and ski on that area. Uh, it's 
a, an issue in southeast Alaska and in the the Anchorage, Alaska area where you get a lot of hiking and you got a lot of traditional trapping going on. That's in the newspapers there. It's a perennial issue around the U.S. where uh, an animal gets, a dog gets killed in a trap or a snare and it becomes a huge story and it's kind of this like launching pad for the animal rights folks to jump on and and use the momentum to try to ban trapping in some way, shape, or form. Now, half the time, at least in the, from what I could tell, the situation was a result of an illegal set. And obviously, we're all, you know, the vast majority of trappers, and especially people listening to this podcast, people who are licensed in their uh, state, we're not going to be breaking the law intentionally. And if if you are, then you you really need to do a little personal gut check and uh, and really understand that that is you need to be following the rules. I mean, this is this is a serious deal. But a lot of times the the rules are in place to avoid these situations. And when somebody is breaking the law and it happens, uh, the good part of that is is you can look back and say, listen. The vast majority of trappers are, are law-abiding citizens. This was a bad apple. This happened as part of an illegal act that needs to be made very clear. And um, this person is going to be punished. And they usually are punished to a very large extent, um, to the the full extent of the law. At least there was a case last year in Montana. I think someone had a 330 set on dry land. No trapping license. It was completely illegal. And uh, they killed a dog. It was in like the Missoula area, I think, and that person was very heavily penalized, massive fine, and loss of license and all that stuff. So, it's uh, they don't judges don't mess around when you kill someone's dog. It's not cool, and that's the thing, you know, dogs, whether they're hunting dogs or someone's pet, it it is a very emotional situation for people. Yes, they're animals, but people form very strong bonds with their pets. And so you you strike a nerve when you do something that impacts their pet. So it's bad PR for all trappers. Uh, so we need to avoid those problems. However, the other side of the issue is we all have a right to use these public lands. And trappers, as well as hunters, anglers, and other general recreationalists, uh, all take part in, uh, in the, I, I guess, the... These lands are a portion for all people to use. Now, some of them are just lands that were purchased with general state monies. Some of them were land grants from for the state or for federal government. Uh, some of them were uh, like wildlife refuges that were purchased with uh, hunting license dollars. And wildlife management areas are purchased with hunting, trapping, fishing license dollars. So there's a whole combination. But in general, you know, we all have a stake in this. We all have a right to use the land. So the the real challenge is finding ways to accommodate for those multiple uses uh, without negatively impacting somebody else's use. And that's the problem. So it's easy to look at it and say, well, we're trappers. We have just as equal right to use this land as somebody else. Uh, that's somewhat true but if your activity um, has more of an impact on somebody else than their activity has on you then that becomes a bit of a sticky situation because uh, 
like uh, one of the, I, I'm embarrassed I don't know this, my history, uh, it needs, I need a little brush up on history, but uh, somebody once stated that um, my, uh, your individual rights end at the bridge of my nose. And what they meant by that was, you have the right to do anything you want until it affects me, another citizen. Um, and so, so freedom is very important, but when your activity that you are participating in as a, a free citizen is affecting somebody else in a negative way, then all of a sudden, uh, we got a few issues there. So we're going to talk first about ways that we can minimize those impacts. And I have, uh, I have kind of, I guess I have five different points here, but, uh, the first three of them are going to really focus on on minimizing impacts. Um, we're going to we'll talk about making sets discriminate, talk about avoidance, minimizing damage. Finally, we'll get into education and just overall uh, avoidance uh, in, on a, in a broad sense. So those are kind of the five points we'll cover. Number one, make your sets discriminate. And I commented last week with that someone was doing a little educational piece and on traps and they called body grip traps indiscriminate and I really took issue with that because uh, traps are discriminant and the, the the whole indiscriminate argument by the antis uh, is not true if you use certain um, th- there there are many ways in which you can make your traps discriminate based on how you set them, where you set them, um, different methods that you use. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. Number number one, um, if you're just trapping generally not for canines, there are a lot of sets that you can make that are not going to catch canines. And this is the reason we're talking about this whole canine issue, obviously, is because dogs are canines. And anything that attracts a coyote or a fox is going to attract a dog. And our goal here is to avoid catching those dogs in our traps. Now, we're going past the issue. Yes, we understand. We all have an equal right to be there. That is true. However, um, when a dog gets caught in your trap, we got problems. And so we understand there's a possibility that's going to happen. What can we do to try and minimize that happening? Because if the dog is in the area, whether they should be or not, and they don't get caught in your trap, that's a win. Okay, that's a win. If that trap can still be effective at catching your target animal and it doesn't get caught in your trap uh, and it doesn't catch a dog, uh, we're on the winning side here. So uh, if you're not trapping specifically for fox and coyotes, if you're trapping for other animals, uh, raccoon, skunk, muskrat, um, etc., you can make those sets discriminate to those species and you can avoid catching somebody's dog. Um, a very, very obvious one. If you're trapping for muskrat and beaver, you can set those only in water. Okay, so if you've got your traps um, set in the water. Now, uh, the reason I say this is because there are potential opportunities to, say, snare beaver on dry land. Especially you got areas where you got like a, a cornfield or a, a crop on the edge of the water and the coons, or the coons, the beaver will come out and the, you'll see trails coming out from the water and the beaver will come out on dry land and do some feeding there. Um, they'll also feed on, on aspen or other woody species 
on dry land on the edges of the water. Yet same with your your snares for coon, um, your foothold traps for coon. You can make those pocket sets down on the edge of the water. Um, raccoons. If you're gonna set with foot for coons with footholds, just do them in the water. But you can also make sets for coon using dog-proof traps. So if you're not familiar with dog proofs or DPs, a lot of people call them, those are very simple traps that, uh, and there are a million different models and, and types of dog proofs that people have come up with over the years. But basically, they're uh, a sort of enclosed, small enclosed box type trap that has a hole in it that an animal has to put their foot in and grab the bait in order to spring the trap. And so, uh, a raccoon is one of the only animals that has the dexterity and the hand use of their hand. You know, a coyote or a fox or a dog, they use their feet to, to dig, but they can't grab and pull like a coon can uh, with their feet. And so a coon will stick its hand in there. Um, you can occasionally, you can catch other species like uh, possums in dog proofs. And on very limited occasions you could catch a skunk but basically that's what you're going to catch you're not going to that's why they're called dog proof traps you're not going to catch a, a fox a coyote or someone's dog so that's kind of a no-brainer and if you listen back to some of my interviews with ron jones from new jersey he had an awesome explanation of using dog proofs in kind of like non-traditional sets so you can make sets up away from the water and you can make like dirt hole sets that you would make for fox and coyotes and catch coons in those and dog proofs. They're they're very effective and they're not what you would initially think of when using DPs, but you can catch coons in dry land using those. Um, you, you can catch coons in dry land using 220s and that is, uh, people commonly do that in a number of places. You, you can run those on trails and you can be very effective. But do you really want to take a chance of someone's dog running through that trail? And a larger dog is probably not going to be as much of an issue, but a dog has got his head low to the ground and it's going through that trail following some scent and pokes its head through that 220, you get a dead dog there. So do you really want to take that chance? Um, I would say you could be just as effective with a, a dog proof set kind of along the edge of that trail. Um, or uh, or potentially some other designs uh, that we'll talk about in a minute. You can also use a 220 that is inside of a uh, a kind of a, a portable pocket or a man-made cubby. You can use that in kind of a bucket. You can recess that 220 back. Uh, there are certain states that have regulations that require them to be uh, a maximum opening size and require them to be recessed like seven or eight inches from the entrance of the box. And if you do that, um, it's a very, very, very low odds that the dog is going to stick their head in there. It's just not their nature. Uh, definitely a fox is, or a coyote's not going to do it, and a fox is highly unlikely to do it. Um, but coons will in, in a heartbeat. Coons and skunk and, and potentially bobcat. So those are that those are ways that you you can use a 220 um, on dry land and uh, avoid catching a dog now let's let's get into snares you can use snares for coons skunks other critters on dry land as well as fox and coyotes 
and you can avoid you can't avoid catching a dog you you're probably going to catch a dog but you can there are ways that you can avoid killing the dog in that snare we'll actually get on get into that in the next section but uh, as far as using snares for uh, critters other than fox and coyotes with coon and skunk your the size of your loop and the height of that loop off the ground is going to allow you to be very discriminant with that snare set, such that a dog is going to walk right over top and knock that snare down, whereas a coon or a skunk that is traveling lower to the ground is going to get get their head through that. Uh, the other thing that I've done in the past, like when I was trapping out in Utah and you could legally uh, use snares on dry land that way, is I, I would look for areas under fences where I knew that, uh, especially these little tight spots under fences where I knew coon, the coons and skunks were going through, and I'd set these small snares uh, in those areas that they were squeezing under, and you could catch them very effectively, but a dog wasn't going to squeeze through that, and you weren't going to have issues with catching somebody's dog, and there was very slim odds in those cases that fox and coyotes were going to sneak through there, so those are some ways that you can do that, but basically... We're looking at ways to make sets as discriminant as possible. Uh, another way, it's it's not as effective, but it, it can help, is using uh, certain types of baits. Uh, like, we know meat-based baits are going to catch coyotes and fox. They're also going to catch and attract people's dogs. However, we know non-meat-based baits are less likely to attract fox, coyotes, and dogs, but they will attract animals like coons. So you can look at more of your sweet lures and baits um, and your food lures that are not based on meat and have a better chance of, of targeting just coons. So we're, we're basically looking there trying to make our sets as discriminant as possible. Another thing you can do is make those body grip sets uh, up in the trees like those 220 sets. You can put those uh, up in the tree for animals like coons and, and avoid catching uh, non-targets on the ground. Now let's move on to the second part of this and um, in addition to making our sets discriminate if we're not target specifically targeting fox and coyotes, we're going to get into some uh, strategies for avoidance of dogs for sets that are targeting canines. So like I said before, anything that's going to target a canine is going to potentially catch a dog. So we we can't necessarily um, eliminate the chances. We can't eliminate chances of of catching a dog in any of these canine sets. I'm just gonna put it flat out. I I really don't see a good way that you can do that. If you guys have some method, some magical method that works, um, let me know. But basically, you're targeting canines are going to catch a dog. Um, one thing we can do is use kind of avoidance methods to try and reduce the chances of catching that dog. This is not going to work very well with with the hunting dog situation. Uh, however, it will work well with the recreational uh, situation where people are trying to uh, walk their dogs on, along these trails. And the most obvious thing is setting as far away as reasonably possible from access points or trailheads and from those main trails. That becomes difficult of course because when we're trapping 
we're trying to be efficient as well and the further you get from the vehicle the more time it takes to check those sets and the fewer sets that you can make and the less effective that you're or less efficient you're going to be and we know the travel ways are being used by these animals what did i say path of least resistance right so it's kind of counterintuitive but if if uh if you can there are uh, potential ways to catch animals in a place where you otherwise might not want to trap because you are uh, too in too much of a high traffic area. So don't set right at the trailhead. Go down the trailways and put your set 50 feet or 50 yards off the trail if you can. Find an area where you can be trapping. And then uh, in the instance that it, a dog does wander off, uh, they're not likely to wander off that far and find your set. But if they do, then it was pretty obvious that the owner was not in control of that animal. And and uh, in most states, uh, pet owners are required to be in control of those animals at all times. And they can't just let them run loose because dogs running loose can lead to a lot of issues. Not only the whole trapping thing, but um, a, a lot of a lot of safety issues for other humans. Um, disturbance of wild animals, um, birds, everything else. So, so th- uh, that is one of the the things you can do. Another thing is really not great, but you can try to avoid times of high traffic. So, let's say you know that that trail is heavily used on weekends. You may be planning to set for five days, and you may set on a Monday morning and pull on Friday. And uh, get get in there and get out before the weekend. That that is something to consider. Um, it's it, you know again, there's no huge, great, straightforward answers there, uh, but those are some things that you can try and you can think about. Now, getting on to number three, this is accept the fact that you will potentially catch a dog when you're trapping for canines. This is kind of the most common sense thing. Is like this is going to happen, and if I'm gonna trap here. I need to accept that. And you've already, I'm assuming you've already gone through the thought process in your head and you've decided, you've weighed the pros and the cons and you decided that it was still worth trapping despite the chance of of catching a dog. And so you're going to do it. In that case, what can you do to minimize the damage done when this animal is caught? You want to make this experience as painless as possible for both the dog and the dog owner. Number one thing that comes to mind is if you're snaring, you can use cable restraints instead of lethal snares. And again, going back to Ron Jones, we talked about this in New Jersey. They have certain regulations and they're required to use these uh, specific types of snares. And uh, I don't know if they're what you would traditionally call a cable restraint in other states, um, but they're a snare with a stop in a certain area. And the, the, the way that the snares are unbelievable because they can be designed to do almost anything that you can want them uh, to do. You can adjust the location of your stop to decide how far that snare is going to be able to cinch down. You can use different locks, um, which we you know, are, are often termed either uh, quick kill locks or relaxing locks. So snare locks that pull down super tight and don't 
give up, don't don't have any give, and they will provide a quick painless death for an animal. Obviously, you don't want that for somebody's dog. And you can have locks that relax when an animal stops pulling and open back up just a little bit. So they're still holding the animal, but they do not clamp down and, and make a quick kill. They kind of let the animal sit there and, um, and be alive when you or the pet owner shows up. So you can do a lot of things there to, um, to design those snares and, and set those snares. You're not going to use springs. Don't use kill springs. Don't use kill poles. Um, on in these areas depending of course on on your specific snare setup but the way that uh, the way that Ron Jones put it when he described his setup was you you get an animal that hits that snare the immediate reaction is to go hard um, and try to get away and they go and they'll they hit the end of that wire and that snare tightens right down and he's got his snare stop placed right to where the lock hits the stop and it kinks the wire and that's as far as it's going to go and it's not going to cinch down any tighter and all of a sudden the way that lock is lodged in to the stop it is just like an animal being on a leash and a wild animal is going to just pull and pull and pull and keep on pulling and and maybe you've got a kill pull set up there and and they're going to be dispatched in that snare a dog is used to being on a leash. They're leash trained. They hit the end of that. They put the kink in the, the snare wire at the stop. It's just like being on a leash. And they're going to sit there and they may howl for their owner. They're going to sit there and wait until their owner gets there. And then they can be uh, taken out of that snare. So that's one design that you can use uh, snares. And and I would say to, to look for more advice there on uh, the very specifics. Re- re-listen to that Ron Jones episode that we did on that. And uh, and also look for other people online and other snaring instruction to try to get that right. And also, obviously, your state regulations because a lot of states have very specific snaring regulations. But there are ways that you can avoid the potential to kill an animal, uh, to kill somebody's pet, and you can still snare near public areas. Just be very careful with it and make sure you know what you're doing. Foothold traps. We are going to catch dogs in foothold traps. It's like the quintessential coyote trap, coyote set. A dog is going to react just the same way. You got some scent smeared on a rock, uh, kind of a flat set there, and the dog's going to go sniff at that and pee on it just like a coyote would. And they're going to step in the same spots, and that's where your trap is, and they're going to get caught. Now, last year I had I had a dog get caught, and I wasn't even I wasn't around. I'd already checked my traps for the day, and it must have been midday. And some bird hunters got out, and I was at it was at the end of a road. Actually, it wasn't really a spot I would be bird hunting. Um, it wasn't a really birdie looking spot, but they got out. Dog must have run around the truck a couple of times, smelled my lure on my set. And went over there and snap, got caught in, in the trap. I had a trap that was made for a very good experience for that dog. And this is key when you're trapping near these public areas. Because if you're trapping and you know whatever you catch is going to be a wild animal, like say you're Craig O'Gorman and you're trapping on a ranch, uh, a sheep ranch in Montana and eastern Montana, and it's 
private area and nobody but the ranch owner or ranch manager and you has been on that entire 10,000 acres the entire year. You know what you're going to catch, you're going to kill. There's there's nothing there that's going to be released um, in most cases, I guess. And so there's less of a concern over uh, whatever foot damage uh, is happens when that animal's caught in the trap. Now, some people, you know, part of me thinks, well, even though the animal's going to be dead in a couple hours when I come and shoot it, I do want the experience to be as painless as possible while sitting there in the trap. And in some cases, that is legitimate. In other cases, I mean, another whole other episode we could do on this, but um, when the paw swells up and the animal has adrenaline run, it, it's probably not feeling pain in that foot anyway. I, I really don't want to get into the specifics of that and, and try to think for that animal, animal, but just needless, suffice it to say that they're not humans and they're not thinking the exact way that we are and their feet aren't designed the way ours are either. So keep that in mind. Um, but that being said, uh, foot damage is not as much of a concern when you're, you're trapping on a typical line. If you're trapping where you could catch a dog, it's a huge concern because you want that animal to be released and to be able to, to run off and, and not have an issue. And uh, my neighbor is a forester and he's out in the woods all the time. And two years ago, he, he's got just this little tiny dog and he got caught in a trap. And, and when he said it, he told me about it. I thought, oh no. But he said it wasn't that bad. I pulled it up, pulled him out of the trap and he limped around for a little bit and then he was fine. He said he won't do that again. <laughs> so, so that was that was good. That was good to hear that that uh, whoever it was that was trapping and 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 whoever's trap caught that dog, uh, it wasn't a problem. And it w- I heard third hand through uh, about the dog getting caught in my trap last year. And the guy, the only thing the guy said was was he ended up worse than the dog because he went to take the dog out of the trap and and the dog bit him. Um, so he got a little little bite mark on his hand. And uh, he said he took the dog out, and it was like it had never been in a trap. It, and this was an MB550, cast jaws, offset jaws, um, three swivels, two coiled. So these are modifications that we can use that are going to make that experience as painless as possible for the owner and the pet. Um, <laughs> hopefully the pet doesn't bite the owner, but that's going to happen. Um, and we'll get into how to avoid that in uh, in a little bit here. But... Uh, the the point is when you're using foothold traps near public areas where someone somebody's dog could get caught, let's use good traps. And and this goes pretty well too with those hound hunters uh, and those dog hunters that are are running deer, bear, coyotes, whatever with their dogs, and they happen to get caught in your trap. You want the owner to be go up. It, most of the time, those guys dogs have been caught in traps before. Um, they the, these hunters have enough experience that they they know they might be annoyed by it. They might some of them might steal your trap, but I'm sure a lot of those guys would just go up to the spot, release the dog, and leave the trap there and walk away. Oh, guess that uh, was unfortunate, but and the dog just if everything's good uh, and the trap is good, uh, n- n- you know doesn't cause damage. Uh, off they go. They're on their way. You come back. You may not even know. You may see that and say. The first thing I thought when the dog got caught in my trap was, wow, I got a brand new MB550 and I had a coyote pull out of that. I can't believe it. And then when I heard the story, I thought, okay, it makes sense. So you may have had that happen on some one of your traps 
and not even know that a dog got caught there and, and the owner just uh, popped him out and and they went on their way so that's something to consider is uh, is just making sure your traps are are well modified to avoid any damage and so uh, the 550, I can't say enough about it because it's right out of the box. It's designed for that. Uh, get the off. I would get the offset jaws if if I could. Now, um, the the jaws you should get laminated jaws. What that basically means is there's a wider surface area on that jaw, and so it's going to put less pressure on that animal's foot um, in a particular area. It's less pressure per, I guess, square inch that's concentrated that's touching uh, either side of that foot. And so uh, that's going to minimize the damage and, and allow blood flow to uh, continue through to the foot. And uh, the swivels are going to help if the animal is running a few circles around. They're not going to get twisted up and, and uh, you know, twist some ligaments up or get, you know, get injured, injure their foot or leg at all or shoulder. Um, you can use shock springs. I really... I. I don't think there's going to be enough time for them to leap. They're not going to leap and lunge and dodge and move around as much as a coyote will. So I wouldn't be as concerned about that. But but it does not hurt to add shock springs. Um, and just, again, those cast jaws are way better with the smooth edges. If you have like a traditional stamped jaw, there's going to be some rough edges like the Dukes. Um, you want to be really careful with those. If you can... Take a file and smooth, or a grinder, and smooth off any sharp edges on that trap because you don't want a sharp edge uh, being able to cut into that foot. And then, you know, you got a little bit of blood maybe that might risk getting a little bit of infection or something. And just the dog owner is going to have to, going to see that and see a little cut there and say, oh, that's not very good. And uh, you don't want to have them have to take their dog to the vet or have to have the dog limping around for, for a week. Um, if you can avoid that just by having some smoother jaws, go for it. Just be smart. Do these things where they're necessary and where the high-risk areas are so that you're not regulated and forced to do it in the future um, or you're not, uh, your ability to trap in those areas is not taken away. Now, the fourth point I want to talk about here is education. And there's two aspects to this education. Number one is before the catch, and number two is after the catch. So before the catch, um, if you can educate uh, people to understand that there is trapping going on in an area, I think typically that is uh, that is a good thing um, in most of the time that is more positive than negative. Um, but it depends on how it's done, because if... Uh, let me give you an example. You can cause more alarm and fear among people than than uh, you can benefit by, by uh, this by notifying them that you're trapping in an area, uh, especially in an urban type area. So here's an example. Um, when I was in Montana, there were certain rules uh, for trapping on state-owned lands, and the state well they were. DNRC lands uh, that were uh, they were the school trust lands owned by the state of Montana and like just not to get into too much detail but uh, one section out of every township there's I believe 36 townships uh, 36 sections in a township a section is one mile by one mile 
And in general, one section out of every 36 was apportioned to the state uh, when the land was initially surveyed in order to provide for education in schools. So they call, a lot of people call these school, school lands or school blocks, school sections. And the school sections were built, put together under the assumption that every township in the state was potentially going to be settled and uh, was going to need to have a school. And so when they were putting together these surveyed townships, they wanted to make sure that there was some land set aside that could be used, whether it was through grazing leases or maybe oil or some sort of land use, uh, timber in some places that could be cut in order to provide revenue that could be used to fund the schools and fund the education system. And so that it didn't always, it didn't really work out to where uh, you know most of those towns were actually not settled, but those lands are still out there. Some of them have been traded and consolidated into larger blocks. And so some towns have no sections and other places there's still a section in every town and they're kind of scattered about. Um, some of them you can't get to because they're landlocked with uh, private land all around them and so forth. Again, Onyx, get the Onyx app and you'll know in Montana where all these school sections are uh, that you can potentially recreate on. But when I was there, you had to have a permit to trap those and it was a first come first serve and you had to apply every year to the regional DNRC office in order to trap those. And you there was a certain number I think you could apply for, and I applied for some, but they had specific rules around those. And one of the rules was uh, at any access point, you had to place a sign that said, notice, traps in use, proceed with caution. And that was all all that you had to have there. And so I had a bunch of these printed up and and to put up so that, so people would have noticed. But I, you know, I really thought about that for a while. And I thought if I was somebody that had no idea what trapping was, and, and except what I've heard in the media or whatever, and I was an urbanite and I just bought a nice house in a little subdivision on the edge of this town in Montana, I'm going to be a cowboy and be part of the West and I want to walk my dog, I'm retired, and I got lots of money, and I don't need to do work, and I want to walk my dog every day to get stay in shape. And there's a beautiful trailhead on this public land right next to where I live. Well, people are going to walk and get to that trailhead and see traps in use proceed with caution. And the first thing that a lot of those people are going to think, the first emotion that's going to come to them is fear. What is this all about? Oh, no. Could I step on a trap and get killed? Could I? You know, they're thinking bear trap. You know, so it, it's good to let people know because it's not good to just have them find out by having their pet caught in a trap. But it's also, I don't think it's good to strike fear in them. And then they're going to think, well, I don't want this around my house. And then all of a sudden things come up for a petition to ban trapping and they're the first one to sign. You know, I don't, I want to be able to enjoy this trailhead. I don't. And so, so it's, there's two sides of that coin and, and I don't know the right, the perfect approach to this, but there's got to be a way to inform people in a, in a manner that's less alarming and sort of more, I guess what I would say would be emotionally acceptable for most of today's society, um, that that's spending more time 
in this area that that we like to trap in. So uh, just a little tangent. I was thinking at some point we here at me and you guys here at Trapping Today should think about designing some sort of a, a diagram, uh, some sort of educational mini poster or something uh, for people to be able, for other trappers to be able to post the, at trailheads like this. That's going to be uh, more informative, brief, but help people understand, like maybe a picture of a trap, what it looks like, basically show them you're not going to die from stepping on this, neither is your pet, and here's how you get the animal out. Because that's the second part of the the uh, education is one of the biggest, most fearful things for people is what if my pet gets caught in there and I don't know how to get it out? And they don't know how a trap works. And they don't know how to how to get their animal out. So just showing them that, um, you know, first of all, you could you can avoid this by keeping your animal on a leash so it doesn't get caught in a trap. Um, however, if something happens, if it, you know, it is on the leash and you walk out on the edge of the trail and it still gets caught or whatever, here's a simple way of releasing it. And, oh, by the way, make sure you don't get bit because your dog's going to be under a lot of stress for a couple seconds when it's in that trap. So there are ways you can avoid getting bit. Um, if you got heavy gloves, put those on. Um, otherwise, a nice heavy coat. And if during trapping season, if you're walking a dog, you probably have a pretty heavy coat anyway. And you could take your coat off, put it over, gently put it over the top of that dog, go down to the feet, either use your feet or your hands to push down on each of those levers, and that dog's foot's going to pop right out of the trap. And it's going to be as simple as that. Dog's going to be back free. The pain's going to go away. It's not going to want to bite you anymore. Okay, so so there's got to be a way for us to do that. So if anybody has experience um, with designing something like that, or you wanna you wanna step up and kind of help help uh, put something together, I'd be happy to have a bunch of those printed up. Maybe put them on the Trapping Today store, just like for the cost of printing and shipping them. You could buy some laminated posters from me uh, on that, um, so we can we can get that out, or maybe pr- I could provide a PDF on TrappingToday.com. And uh, you could print your own off and go get them laminated or something. Something that, that we can use that will be a positive education for people and and help, again, like Cole says in, uh, in, in that uh, interview we did a long, long time ago, is, is try to shed, some positive, sh- shed uh, some positive light on trapping and trappers as a whole. So, so we can do that with, with education. Um, signs in and educational stuff uh there's people especially like in montana they have clinics at the cabela's or sportsman warehouse around trapping season for people to come just a free clinic for people who aren't familiar who want to be able to learn how to release their dogs from traps and a lot of times there's these anti-groups so it's very heated and it's not you got to be careful because there's going to be a lot of potential anti-trapping rhetoric. But I do think if you can find a way as a trapper to show up to one of those clinics and just put a face to a trapper so they know you're a human being and you care about their concerns and you want to show them exactly how to operate that trap, I think that goes a long ways. Um, there are some cases where it can be a little negative. Uh, 
and and there are certain people. There's one in particular. I guess I'm, I better not mention his name, but he was a government trapper, and he's spreading a little bit of negative negativity on trappers in some of these type of clinics. But uh, you can do that in a positive way. So so get out and do that if you have the chance. And then finally, we're gonna go to uh, number five, and this is one of those things that sometimes you just have to have to deal with it. Um, sometimes it's better not to trap in an area when you weigh the the, the good and the bad, the positives and the negatives. Um, I think that it's good for us all to have that little person sitting on our shoulder, looking over and watching what we do and the decisions that we make. And I always try to keep that in mind. Uh, and try to be aware and conscious of what I'm doing and how I'm going to be affected, how others are going to be affected, and uh, both inside and outside of the trapping community. And if you weigh the pros and cons, sometimes you're going to come to the conclusion, as much as I hate to say it, yes, uh, you have a great point, guys, that have pointed this out. We do have a right to be on those public lands just like anybody else. But is it worth the cost uh, in the long run? You need, I can't make that decision for you. Um, only you can make that decision. If you make the wrong decision, and too many of you make the wrong decision, we're going to have a lot of regulations that are going to prevent your ability to make that decision anywhere on public lands. Um, so, so just be very cognizant of that, and please try to be that guy who, who uh, thinks thinks about the ramifications of this and decide whether it's worth it. You know, maybe you do decide it's worth it. And I'm not going to tell you that you're right or wrong. Only you know your particular situation. But like uh, Mike in Wyoming, we talked about in a previous episode where he was made a, made a set during pheasant season and had a few issues with the dog. And uh, he said, you know what? I probably shouldn't have sat there. I probably should have just waited till the end of pheasant season, let it go by, and go set my traps. And I could sit on private land until then, that time. So sometimes sometimes those are decisions we have to make. Uh, and it, it's, you know, like another case where I, I had this recently is in town, the town that I live near, there was a woman that was having problems with Fisher. And there was a fisher in town and it was killing people's pets. It was killing cats. And I, the warden asked me if I wanted to trap that fisher. It was right in the middle of the trapping season. The fur would have been great. And I thought about it for a little while. And I thought about the, the positive and the negative aspect of it. I could, I could show that, you know, trappers can help eliminate these fisher problems. And, and I almost did it. And then I thought, you know what? I know where that area is. There's a lot of houses. There's a lot of pets. If I could, if I catch a pet and kill somebody's cat in that Fisher set, it's not going to be worth it. And somebody else might have decided, well, no, there's pretty low chance I'm going to catch a pet. I'm I'm going to be um, I'm going to set a certain way, and and it's going to be all set. But to me, I wasn't comfortable with that, and I decided to pass. So we all have to we all have to kind of make that decision. In, in our trap lines, and, and it isn't perfect. I'm sorry that I don't have all the answers, but hopefully this was just a chance to kind of go through that whole thought process and help you become a little more educated on 
those different situations and when we're trapping on public land with all kinds of different users and trying to find ways to uh, to balance all that out. All right, that's it for this episode. I got to go and do another interview, so I'm I just about wore out my voice today, but. Uh, I got one last thing that's very important that we need to talk about. It's a message from Cotts Brothers Lures. This is a memorial fundraiser for a former employee of Cotts Brothers Lures who passed away recently, tragically, in a car accident. Uh, a young man that uh, left behind a uh, family, including three kids. So it is really sad and unfortunate. Um, the, the, uh, the fundraiser is... Uh, Cots Bros is selling the Got P Cots Brothers Lures t-shirts at cotsbros.com and uh, just a little bit on Tom so Tom Downing worked for Cots Brothers Lures from 2007 through 2015 Tommy was an excellent company man befriended many customers attended conventions and worked hard our original Got P t-shirts were his idea on September 6 2020 Tommy tragically died in an automobile accident we're doing a limited edition TWD Got P t-shirt in his honor. All of the proceeds from this sale of these t-shirts will be given to his three kids. So there's limited supplies of these shirts. Uh, they're available size small, medium, large, XL, and 2XL. And they've got the Got P in the front and kind of like a play on the Got Milk t-shirts uh, that were, you'd see back in the day. Cots, nice big Cots Brothers Lures logo on the back, and then on the sleeve you got the TWD uh, memorial initials there. And uh, you can you can buy a shirt to help the cause, um, help this guy's kids. I'm I'm sure it's going to be a very difficult time for them, as well as make a five dollar donation. So CotsBros.com, check that out, guys. Thank you for tuning in again. Uh, share the podcast with your friends. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get the podcast. I haven't asked for that recently, but I always love to get the review. And uh, let's get on uh, to talk, talking trapping, thinking trapping. Uh, it is the season, guys. We'll catch you on the next episode.